Jonah chapter 3, verse 10, and finishing in Jonah chapter 4, verse 11. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God changed his mind about the calamity that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. But this was very displeasing to Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this why I said I would wait a while, still in my own country? That is why I fled to Tarshish at the beginning, for I knew that you are a gracious God, a merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and ready to relent from punishing. And now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Is it right for you to be angry? Then Jonah went out of the city and sat down east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade, waiting to see what would become of the city. The Lord God appointed a bush and made it come up over Jonah to give shade over his head, to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was very happy about the bush. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the bush so that it withered. When the sun rose, God prepared a sultry east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah, so that he was faint and asked that he might die. He said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the bush? And he said, Yes, angry enough to die. Then the Lord said, You are concerned about the bush, for which you did not labor, and which you did not grow. It came into being in a night, and perished in a night. And should I not be concerned about Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 people who do not know their right hand from their left, and also many animals? Our second reading this morning is from the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 6, verses 25 to 34. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food? and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more of value than they? And can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your span of life? And why do you worry about your clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, Even Solomon, in all his glory, was not clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow, is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Therefore, do not worry, saying, What will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear? For it is the Gentiles who strive for all these things. And indeed, your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But strive first for the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring worries of its own. Today's trouble is enough for today. This is the word of the Lord. Did you see the news this week that July 2015 is Earth's hottest month on record globally and the signs are looking that 2015 could be the warmest year on record. Just just saying. The relationship between humanity and the natural world has been 
fraught, it's been one of hardship and toil since humans first emerged from the great rift valley to go forth and multiply upon the earth. The struggle for survival is as old as our species, and we have battled on many fronts over the millennia. From early competition with other hominids, to struggles to adapt to hostile environments, from diseases and disasters to famine and crop failure, humans have been at war with planet Earth in a battle for survival pretty much since the beginning. Our current fights about fossil fuels and global warming and climate change are the latest skirmishes in a war that has claimed more lives and done more damage than any other conflict in the history of humanity. So it is no surprise that the Old Testament, or the Hebrew Bible as it's sometimes called, reflects this struggle for survival in many of its narratives. Those who told these stories down the generations, passing the wisdom of the Israelite tradition from parent to child, knew firsthand what it was to do battle with the earth. And in their stories that they told, they reflected before God on what it might mean to be human before nature. And what we find in their traditions are a range of responses to the question of how humans might exist in relation to the natural world. The Genesis creation narrative, for example, starts by affirming the goodness of all things, from the heavens above to the depths of the ocean and everything else in between. And it locates humans as part of this God-inspired, created order. However, it goes on to describe the fracturing of the relationship between humanity and nature, pointing the finger firmly at the sinfulness of the representative humans of Adam and Eve as the originators of the battle for survival. Well, if we fast forward a little bit to their sons, Cain and Abel, we meet the battle between the hunter-gatherer and the agrarian lifestyles. Agriculture first developed in the fertile crescent of the Middle East, where Israel is located, sometime around 10,000 years ago. And we have an echo of this uh, in the deadly conflict between Cain, the cultivator of land, and Abel, the herdsman. The suggestion of this story of Cain and Abel in the, in the Jewish tradition is that God is more pleased with Abel's animal than he is with Cain's grain. But of course it is ultimately Abel who dies at Cain's hand and it is Cain and his descendants who survive to continue planting the land and reaping the harvest and so the world moves from hunter-gatherer to settled agrarian lifestyle and people start to want to lay ownership over bits of land and that in a nutshell is the origin of the Middle East conflict. And then we come to the story of Noah and the flood and God washing his hands of the whole created order ordering a total wipeout and reboot with just Noah and his family and a selection of animals surviving. According to the Noah story, human sinfulness 
had so spoiled nature that the whole thing was ruined beyond redemption and just needed to be destroyed and recreated from scratch. And so I could go on and on and on through the wisdom tradition, through the prophets, through the books of history and monarchy, describing the battles for land, the times of famine, all the stories of plague and pestilence and hardship that humanity has faced. And in all of these, the Hebrew way has been to try and reflect before God on the relationship between humans and the natural order. And so we come to the book of Jonah, which is many things, including, I want to suggest, an ecological parable in the tradition of the Hebrew wisdom literature. We've been looking at the book of Jonah over the last few weeks, and uh, we have already seen how the book of Jonah is a satire on prophecy, how it is a psychoanalytical exploration of the human psyche, We've seen how it challenges our assumptions about God's love, how it asks its readers to think beyond themselves in their understanding of divine mercy and judgment. And if you've missed any of those, they're all available on the Bloomsbury SoundCloud page for accessible via our website. But this week, as we conclude our summer series looking at this little book, I want to suggest that it has something profound to say to us about the relationship between humans and the natural order. The clue comes right at the end of the book. Did you spot it when Luke read it for us earlier? Listen again to verse 11 of chapter 4, the final verse of the book. God says, And should I not be concerned about Nineveh, the great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also many animals? the end. It's always worth paying attention to the way biblical stories end. They don't end the way they do by accident. I mean, when you're writing a sermon, you know, you pay a lot of attention on the way it finishes, and they did the same. This one ends with many animals. Once we've spotted this, and when we start to look back over the rest of the story, we find that the natural world plays an especially prominent role in the book of Jonah. Bear with me a moment and I'll go back over it. The book starts famously with Jonah being called to go and preach a message of repentance to the great city of Nineveh, but deciding to do a runner in the opposite direction and jumping a ship. At this point, the forces of nature start to move in against him. So we're told in the fourth verse of the first chapter that the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. And such a mighty storm came upon the sea that the ship threatened to break up. As soon as Jonah has put himself where he shouldn't be, he finds himself at war with the natural forces way beyond his control. When the sailors on the boat ask Jonah what's going on, he realizes that there's a link between his own disobedience and the disturbance that they're experiencing in the natural order in the shape of the storm. So he says to them that he's a Hebrew, a worshipper of the God who made the sea and the dry land. This is the God of all of nature. He goes on to tell the sailors that if they pick him up and chuck him in the sea, the great storm will quieten down and their lives will be spared. And this is, of course, what happens. The link between Jonah and God and the natural order 
moves at this point from the theoretical to the practical, as Jonah's actions are seen to have a clear effect on the forces of nature. But then they take a turn from the practical to the surreal, as instead of drowning in the sea of chaos, Jonah finds himself alive in the belly of a great fish. And not just any great fish, but a great fish provided by God to rescue him. It's hilarious. The story is at pains to tell us that this isn't some random act of luck. Rather, this is God at work in the natural world to bring Jonah back to where he should be in the order of things. Eventually, according to the story, Jonah is spewed up onto the dry land as he escapes the clutches of the sea and the fish and makes his way eventually to Nineveh to preach his message of repentance. And the response he gets when he gets there is astonishing and, again, quite funny. Not only do the people repent, not only does the king repent, but also so do all the animals. The king even issues a decree demanding that both humans and animals together must fast and put on sackcloth as a sign of repentance. And then we're told that the human and animal voices together cry out to God for mercy. Of course, what Jonah knew would happen does happen, and God lets the wicked city of Nineveh off. No judgment, no fire from heaven, no punishment, just mercy and compassion. And this doesn't suit Jonah at all. So in disgust that justice has not been done, as he sees it, he wanders off to sit under a shelter and sulk. And once again, he is at war with the natural world, and the sun beats down on him, relentlessly baking him into submission. But then, rather unexpectedly, God appoints a bush to grow up alongside him to give him some more shade from the sun. And for a little while, Jonah seems to lift out of his bad mood. But then God appoints a little worm to come and destroy the tree, And then God sends a sultry wind and more sun, and Jonah decides that he's had enough of these games and that he would like to die, please. God has been merciful to the wretched Ninevites with their comedy cows in sackcloth, but seems to be setting the whole of nature systematically against Jonah. Of course, it's all a matter of perspective. And so with the setup complete we get to the crucial end game of this story. And Jonah and God have their big argument. It's reminiscent of some of the stuff you meet in the book of Job. Jonah said, it's better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the bush? And Jonah said, yes, angry enough to die. Then the Lord said, You're concerned about the bush for which you did not labor and you did not grow. It came into being in the night and it perished in the night. Should I not be concerned about Nineveh, the great city, in which there are more than 120,000 people who don't even know their right hand from their left and also many animals? The end. Jonah pitied the plant, but did not want God to pity Nineveh. The irony is inescapable, and the inconsistency of his position at last becomes obvious. God is not the God that Jonah thought and hoped he was. God does not judge as Jonah wants God to judge. Jonah, it seems, had set himself above God, and when he had done that, he had set himself at odds with nature in his attempts to create God in his own image. And those of us reading Jonah's story are invited to join him 
in reflecting on our own place within the natural order. The recurring theme in all of this is that whilst Jonah is disobedient to God, the natural world acts only in obedience to God. The natural world acts to bring Jonah back to a right relationship with both God and nature. And here's the parable. Jonah represents humanity. He represents all of us. We are Jonah. And the lesson of the parable is that when we humans, like Jonah, put ourselves at war with God and God's world, the consequences are catastrophic. But the hopeful message of the book of Jonah is that God is still at work through the natural order to bring humans back to a place of restoration and repentance. We humans have consistently created a philosophical and practical division between ourselves and the rest of the natural order. I don't think we can entirely blame Descartes, but his famous dictum, I think, therefore I am, is probably the best summary of this approach. We who think have come to view animals who do not think as automatons incapable of consciousness. And so we have taken for ourselves permission to treat animals as in effect machines, which exist as a means rather than for their own sake. And in all of this, we're acting entirely against the wisdom of Genesis, which declares that all of creation is good before God. But nonetheless, humans consistently choose to see nature as a tool to exploit and animals as a means to an end. We have built our civilizations on a human-centered view of the world, which regards nature as a commodity available exclusively for our benefit. Our unfettered and rampant exploitation of nature is challenged by the story of Jonah who consistently has to discover what we must also learn, which is that if we place ourselves over and against nature, there is hell to pay. We are a part of the natural order. We are not separate from it. We can no more run from our place in God's creation than Jonah could run from the presence of God. We humans keep placing ourselves at the centre of our own story. We place our own desires above our responsibility to the planet. And so we create a situation where we are at war with nature in a struggle for survival. It's the story of Adam and Eve's rebellion told over and over and over again in each generation as we somehow keep convincing ourselves that we're right and God must be wrong. And yet the story of Jonah is that in God's world, compassion lies at the heart of the story, not humans. God's mercy in Jonah's story is extended to all of creation, not just to humans and not just to the select few humans that Jonah wants it extending to. We would never do that, would we? Humans are not the centre of the story. God's mercy and compassion are. God has compassion on the just and the unjust alike, on animals and plants and planet. 
In the story of Jonah, we find our human-centered view of creation challenged. We, like Jonah, have to learn that God is not just our God, but that he is the God of the entire earth, from animals to plants to the elements to Nineveh itself. Nature is not there to be exploited by humans as if the two are somehow separable. Rather, humans are part of the natural world. All exist together and continue to coexist because and only because of God's compassion. So, it is not surprising that creation itself suffers because of human greed and idolatry. It is not surprising that in both Jonah's story and our story, the voices of the animals cry out for mercy. The animals of Nineveh cried out for compassion, and the natural world in our time does the same. Humans and the natural world will rise or fall together. And the willful human destruction of ecologies is a sin against the nature of God. So what are we to do? I'll come to that in a minute, maybe, with some suggestions. But first, there's an interesting comparison to be drawn here between the story of Jonah and the whale and the story of Noah and the flood. Both stories begin with a threat of destruction against wicked people for their sinfulness. Both stories involve a perilous sea journey. Both stories involve animals. And interestingly, both stories also involve a dove. You see, Jonah means dove. In both stories, it is the dove which flies off and eventually returns, bringing hope of salvation. In Noah's story, the dove comes back with an olive branch, marking the end of the flood, the beginning of a recreation of the planet. In Jonah's story, Jonah is the dove that brings the message of repentance. However, there are important differences between Noah and Jonah. In Noah's story, God destroys the wicked people along with almost all of the natural order. Only Noah's family and a select few animals survive to repopulate the earth. In Jonah's story, God is merciful to the wicked city and the natural world, represented by the animals of Nineveh, is spared. In many ways, Jonah's story is a reversal of Noah's story. Jonah offers a hopeful glimpse of God at work in the natural world, calling humans to discover ways of living in peace with creation, calling humans to repent of their wickedness and cry out with the animals to God for mercy, assuring us that God is merciful and at work in creation to restore us. So what might this mean for us tomorrow? Well, I wonder if we need to rethink our addiction to meat, for example. There is no doubt that there are far more sustainable ways of feeding humanity than feeding cows and pigs and sheep and then shooting them and eating them. Now, this may or may not mean that we end up fully embracing vegetarianism, but it certainly should challenge our relationship to the animals on which we are dependent for our ongoing existence. We might want to think carefully about issues of animal experimentation, exploitation, and genetic modification. 
we could well ask ourselves at what costs we are at odds with the natural world in our own time. There certainly is a cost, but whether we're counting it is far from certain. Now, maybe GM crops do indeed hold the future for feeding humanity. But if so, where does this leave our battery chicken farms and our herdsman industries? If we are not careful, the conflict between Cain and Abel could easily resurface in contemporary guise to haunt a globally warmed world which is struggling with mass starvation. Do we kill or do we plant? These are issues that Christians cannot and should not turn away from. We cannot afford to hide our heads in the sand and just eat ostrich instead of beef. Rather, we need to keep ourselves educated and informed and to take informed decisions together as to how we will partner with God in the care of this world that has been entrusted to us. But this is not a message of despair because the message of Jonah is that God has not given up on creation. Neither has creation given up on humanity because we are part of nature. We are part of God's good creation and we are called to repent of our wickedness, of our exploitation, of our destructive patterns of living. And the invitation is that if we can find ways of living together, existing in harmony with nature, we are opening ourselves up along with the inhabitants of Nineveh to the compassion and mercy of God. We are called to repent of our acquisitiveness to turn away from our obsessions with possessions and to discover what it might mean to live as children of this earth. Or as Jesus put it, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life. What you will eat or what you will drink or about your body, what you will wear, is not life more than food and body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them, are you not of more value than they? And can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to the span of your life? And why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, and yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory wasn't clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear? For it is the Gentiles who strive for these things, and indeed your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But strive first for the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring worries of its own. Today's trouble is enough for today.